0: Hey there, and welcome to Radio Meteor, the podcast where I watch an episode of 90s anime Gundam Wing and ramble about it, because overthinking hastily slapped together children's television is my jam. This week, episode 5 Relina's Secret. Relina no Himitsu. Welcome to Orbit. It. Episode five. Uh it's going well, I feel. Kind of as best as it could be. Let's start off with a kind of overview of this episode because this one has a lot in it. The episode opens with Relina and her dad going back into space. Um, I assume they heading to L1. It's not necessarily specified, um, following obviously the news that there are Gundams who are rumoured to have been sent by the colonies. Whether or not Vice Foreign Minister Darlian is fully aware of the truth is still kind of open for debate. They are accompanied by Lady Un, who is obviously an Oz agent. And then he goes to his meeting. Lady Un has, at the end of the last episode, received what she believes to be orders direct from Trey's in his popcorn bath to do something about the problem. and, And boy, she does. We hop around a bit. In this episode, um, Vice Foreign Minister Dahlian cops it. We find out Relina's secret, you know, cue title. We get that continuation of what the others are doing as well. We check in with Katra and Troa, um, who had, in the last episode, met up and were staying at one of Katra's bases. Uh, We check in with Wu Fei, who's still doing his own thing, very much following his mission. We check in with Hiro, who has... Taken off in Wing Zero having <laughs> stolen parts from Duo and kind of given him a bad day. And we obviously check in with Duo as well, who has now got a defunct Gundam. He's busy trying to repair it before he gets his next mission. At the end of the episode, Relina meets Dr. J. That's one of the big scenes of this episode. And they have a discussion about Hero, about what's going on. And then at the end, Relina returns to Earth. So that's kind of what's happening in this episode the plot in terms of the grander schemes of things doesn't go very far but we do get some backstory and we can kind of see that everyone is it's busy regrouping reorganizing and starting to put the pedal to the metal you know that kind of thing this is probably one that you might want to re-watch before following on too much more with with this episode of the podcast um just to kind of remind yourself if you've forgotten which <laughs> I do not blame you because I remembered hardly any of this, um, exactly what goes on in this episode. So if you're going to do that, do it now. Alright, you're back? We good? Remembered everything you're doing? A few, few things on language, uh, not masses. We have a recap at the beginning with Relina's Hero Come and Kill Me. And uh, I didn't talk about this in the last episode, I kind of glossed over it because there was enough to talk about on other things, but I did notice actually the word she uses, she said Hayaku atakushi ni we discussed before how every other time that she's spoken to Hiro, she's been very direct, very bossy, here we get this switch back to a kind of not super formal level of politeness that she has used with other things, but a kind of Almost ironic level of politeness, so she defaults back to atakushi, that politer form of watashi, I, and then we have this verb at the end irashai. This is the casual form of a very formal verb um, that is used frequently in generally informal contexts. I know languages are messes, okay? So irashai is from the verb irashaimasu, which is a Oh, here I get confused. I can't remember if it's honorific or the other one. I think it is what's known as Kego, It's honorific for to come or to go. You also hear this like every time you walk into a convenience store, like some poor teen wedged behind the counter will say like, because it's 3 a.m. and you've turned up to buy toilet roll and wasabi because that is the whole point of a convenience store. It allows you to do that and make those life choices. I absolutely did that once to confuse a convenience store clerk. (laughs) um so she kind of dropped the mass ending from the verb which makes it standardly polite i guess anyway this is a very long-winded way to say that this is the first time she's used any kind of her standard polite phrasing um directed to hero and he's not even there to enjoy it you know and i'm going to come back to talk about relina quite a bit in this episode because a the episode is quite a lot about her but we also get Some really interesting insights into her character. So, again, talking about language, um, we talked about Relina, how she talks to her peers, she's very detached, very formal. We actually get to hear them talk to each other without her present, and they're much, much less formal. They're still polite in that sort of all-girls school formal, like, Gokigenyo kind of way, Um, but they're using a much more standard form of politeness rather than this sort of almost archaic politeness, or this, this overblown politeness, you might want to say. Actually, you no, know, there's one more language point regarding Relina, which I will come back to when we discuss her character because I think it's such a good illustration of who she is at this stage of the game. So, the last thing about language that I'm going to talk about is how Relina and Dr. J respectively talk about Hiro. So, up till now, we've had Relina describe Hiro as a child, that's kodomo word, uh, then he's been described respectively as like a shonen by sally and i can't even remember how Gio addresses him like i don't i think he just kind of skips that didn't he Uh, whatever but here she refers to him as hiro-kun is that suffix ending that is is like exclusively used for young boys and perhaps boys of your own age in your class and then you might use it to talk about adult men if like you know them well so like i might talk about a guy i went to school with as Hirokun, but it kind of expresses a little bit of a sense of familiarity. So she's really kind of in front of Dr. J. She's kind of claiming a little bit of ownership. I mean, she's using his first name right off the bat, which isn't typical in Japanese. You would usually, there's like a bit of a big deal about being invited to do that. Although having said that in a modern context, a lot of people do just kind of skip to that. And it might be that they've done this, you know, the way that she's referred to as Rilina, pretty much exclusively uh, to demonstrate a kind of more global attitude within the canon. <laughs> but then she only does that once. She very quickly drops it and just goes back to calling him Hiro with no honorific whatsoever. Dr. J doesn't even bother to use his name. He refers to Hiro as uh, Yatsu, which I mentioned before. It's just that kind of slangy kind of way to say guy. He also uses Aitsu, which is another kind of way to talk about a person, but also a thing, and again, it's relatively casual. I mean, this this dude is his his language is really interesting. He his he does not talk like you would expect a scientist to talk. He's kind of he's kind of cowabunga <laughs> if, you, if you follow what I'm saying there, he also refers to Hero as when relina asks Doctor J, "What are you doing? Like, what's your connection to Hero? Who is he to you?" kind of thing. He says, "I'd that that this guy this this." person is our agent and that's how it's translated in the english subtitles uh, and the word he uses is really curious to me because he says sha. now i had real trouble with this one because i've come across the word dairi before but not in a context even remotely resembling this i've come across it in terms of an agent specifically a travel agent so you have like the bioko Tent is the travel agency building type Thing and then it's typically like diety nin, not sha. Uh, it's a different character. Uh, it still kind of denotes the same thing, but it's just a weird ending. Like it's it's not a typical conjunction of, of, of characters here. Uh, and crucially, it also doesn't mean secret agent. Okay, throw that idea out. That's not what it means whatsoever. Because there's the very different words for a spy or a secret agent. You have uh which I did have to look up because I'd forgotten what they were. You've got kancho. You have kansha and you have warashimono totally different so i'm not quite sure what they were aiming for with this whether it's like a, just a rare word that my experience and my dictionary haven't really come up with much or they've kind of invented this to show a kind of uniqueness to the situation remains to be seen I'm not sure i will keep my ears peeled so to speak uh, to see if it's ever used again oh shoot there is one last thing jay reveals the presence of oz to relina so she's heard about it once from her dad and then he kind of reiterates that oz exists they're a real thing they're a real deal and that's who they're opposing and she asks who who oz are like what's the deal there and jay refers to them as akuma yatsu now akuma is best translated or most easily translated as like devil or demon that kind of like thing from hell So I feel like that's another reflection on this fairy tale type overview that's been going on. So we had Kaibutsu sex talking about monsters, we've had princes, and now we've got devils. So, you know, themes carrying on. Yeah, so there we go. We've got uh, just a few bits on language, but that's what we got. Let's talk now a little bit about the world that uh, we're kind of exploring. So, for the first part of this episode, we get to travel with Relina and her dad into the colonies, and we get to kind of see the colonies through their eyes. What is this place? You know, we know that it's rare for people from Earth to travel to the colonies. We know that travel from the colonies to Earth and between colonies is rare. We also have—oh, do we have it, or have I just picked this up from Frozen Teardrop—that. At any rate, communications are are pretty slim as well. One thing I really noticed, and this is a complete aside in the introduction, is that we have these donut-shaped colonies out there. Uh, So when it's doing its the year is after Colony 195 bit, oh, we get a nice image of uh, this this ring-shaped colony. And that kind of put a little ding in my head. Oh, you know, the International Space Station, when did that happen? Where does this image come from? Because I talked about the curving inside of the colony before in episode one. So the International Space Station launched in 1998, a couple of years after Gundam Wing was finished, and prior to that we'd had a couple of Russian space stations. You'll have to forgive me if you already know all of this, I'm super ignorant about astrology and space travel. Kind of something I'm exploring as I go along, you know, I'm I'm learning as well. Um, None of them were circular or ring shaped. Uh, They were all, all tube shaped for the most part. All of our actual space stations are tube-shaped, um, but this concept came out of a mathematical theory in the 1950s um, by a man named von Braun, and it's based on artificial gravity. So if you have a kind of ring that, that spins, you can create gravity. I assume it's something very complicated to do with physics and centrifugal forces. But we do see this in other media of the time, so it pops up in uh, 1968's film 2001, Space Odyssey, which obviously predates Gundam pretty much in its entirety, I think. So yeah, Gundam Wing is (laughs) fairly anachronistic, um, you know, payphones. It still has these little nods to what could be done. And the whole reason, apparently, that the International Space Station isn't donut-shaped and has artificial gravity is because apparently the scientific worth of testing stuff in microgravity or zero gravity is currently a lot better. And also the cost of creating one of these things is just astronomical. Excuse the pun. And uh, nobody can really afford it at the moment. Although that might change. NASA has been talking about doing a little module that spins. It's not donut shaped, I don't think, but um, they might be trying to do that to then see how that works. Um, also, if uh, you've been reading your science things, they also know about uh, how reproduction in space is difficult because of the lack of gravity. So they're talking about doing this for sleeping quarters or, or living quarters. So I wonder what experiments they're going to do up there. Hmm. Um, other things we have, just the fact that Rolina is going back into space again. It's like the second time in as many weeks. And we already know it's incredibly rare for this travel to happen at all. So I, th- I think it's very telling that her father has this little snip with Lady Un- on the shuttle and immediately turns to Rolina and directs her out the window and says, make sure you remember this, uh, look at the earth and remember how beautiful it is. And it just made me think of something I read regarding experiences of astronauts who had been who had been out of the atmosphere and seeing the earth in its entirety for the first time and I can't remember the specific name of the phenomenon so I'm just going to call it earth humbling and it's this change of perspective once you get out of orbit and you look back at the earth and you realize that that is it that is the entirety of humanity that's where we came from that's everything we have And it makes you feel incredibly small, but also it gives this new sense of value to life. You know, I can't remember the exact quote again, but one of them, maybe it was Tim Peake, said he wished everybody could have that experience because it just made you realise that we are one species rather than, you know, we shouldn't be having wars, we shouldn't be fighting. And that really pinged into my head. And it just made me think as well that you have these colonists who have been living in space for such a long long time that they have very likely lost that sense that perspective and you know the earth is no longer a thing of value it's it's become the other the thing that is the them in the phrase them and us um so you get this kind of conflict and likewise the people of earth don't have this perspective that life is so fragile and so important and that you know we only really have this one ball of dirt and that's phenomenal you know the the chances of life existing you know they don't have that earth humbling anymore so we get this kind of sense that there's this I guess this dissonance between people who live on earth and people who live in space so yeah that's what sprung into my head we get as I said before that There's a couple of contradictory perceptions of the colonies. So Relina describes them with this kind of awe. You know, people on Earth are like, oh, space sounds amazing. She talks about the colonists being kind and courteous and it's safe. She specifically says, oh, it's much safer here than on Earth. And I almost kind of get the impression that what she's jaded with is she is jaded with life on Earth. So she's kind of put life in space up on a pedestal. And of course, she's very, very quickly proved wrong. You know, space is as dangerous because people are people wherever they are. And we also get this impression that the communication is bad between the two. So as soon as the minister arrives, he has a conversation with a couple of people of the colonies. Um, they're talking about Earth's chronic financial crisis. And it's purely an irony, it must be, because everyone we've seen on Earth so far has been stinking rich. They've got Rolina's whole private school. Um, we haven't seen... Any suffering exactly, um, at least not yet. That's all to come. And I think this is really curious as well because, again, if I refer back to oh, which one was it? Frozen Teardrop, I think, um, talks about how the colonies are very deeply misled economically by Earth. So that the whole reason that L2 goes to shit is that. They've been forced to pay for the creation of uh, a barge, that? some massive warship. They, they basically got bankrolled and then probably went bankrupt. So we have this impression that the colonies are more economically fragile. They have wealth. Um, they can't really apply it efficiently. And they're being told that, you know, oh, Earth needs your money. But as we've seen, there are a lot of people on Earth who aren't particularly hurting for cash we got the whole of Ramaphela, for example. And this is followed through as well, I think, in how, you know, we get a real chance to sort of see the colony as well. And there's definitely a difference in how it's portrayed. So it's big, for starters. These are not small settlements in space. They're talked about colonies, and we tend to sort of get a little ping in our heads that a colony is it's a little pioneer thing. It's, it's It's a wee thing going off into the wilds. You know, those are like little frontier town kind of images pop up. These are big cities, effectively. And we get a real impact of the sheer mass and the sheer size of everything in the colonies. You know, the skyscrapers in there. They've got highways and big parks and stuff. It's, it's no small potatoes. And the other thing... That sort of pinged up on my radar is that the architecture is strikingly different. It's very utilitarian, it's quite sparse, it's not as modern looking. The skyscrapers of the colonies kind of look like 1960s concrete crap. There's none of this old world heritage, there's not much beauty, has to be said, in a colony architecture. And we also get this as we had the signs that there was fractures amongst the antagonists amongst the alliance we also get these signs that there are fractures amongst the factions of the colonies this isn't discussed in as much detail but we get this one guy turn to vice minister dalian and he's like why does the alliance find it so hard to trust us and he kind of eyeballs him and i can't quite decide whether or not he was judging i feel like he was we do get the guys turn up to fetch the bodies effectively after the explosion and it's again not clear who they are they might have been ex-Sank citizens secret service they might just be the kind of rebels who are working with Dr J or or maybe he fell in with the Sank secret service or whatever they're not part of the main colony hierarchy I suppose we could say they're not part of the people having the main discussions with the alliance so we've got already these sort of like sub-branches we have the alliance, you talk to the colonies, except there's these sort of secondary groups swimming under the surface, kind of muddying the waters. So that's some of the things I've observed about the world and the world building. We've got a a little bit more insight, we've expanded our horizons, and uh, with that we get a few insights about the characters as well. Okay, so starting off with the quick bits. Um, we have a, a nice little check-in with Troa and Katra. I think an award needs to be given to Troa for being the most realistic teenager in this. Oh my god, he's such a moody shit. He did the duet last episode. He was mad about that. He's still mad. He, he's just sulking off into the distance. Um, I assume he got orders to go and do some stuff as a gun and pilot. <laughs> and meanwhile, uh Rashid talks to Katri's like, mm, maybe we shouldn't let him go, he might come back and attack and Katra's just like, Oh, I wish he would, then I could see him again and say what you like. You can you can try and convince me that this boy is cotton candy and I will just No, I just can't buy it. Look at his face as he says, Then I could see him again. He's a little shit, he knows what he's saying, he's devious. Troa's probably out of there like, this boy's trouble. <laughs> So yeah, make of that one what you will. Uh, another observation, I don't think Duo's got cash. Like, we see Howard chilling out on this entire floating dock. It's got at least four super yacht cranes on it. I don't know if he owns that or he's just borrowing it, but that is not an insignificant piece of, of kit. And uh, Howard's like, yeah, cool, dude, you can you can be here and I'll repay your gun as much as you like, as long as you pay me. He could just be ribbing Duo, but... Uh, you know, it does throw up the option there that she was uh, waving around mad cash. <laughs> it could be. It could be. Oh, yeah, we get a little check in with Noin and Zex as well. So we know they're still alive, they're still doing stuff with the tall geese. And we have this, like, little bit where Zex is watching the news and he's watching Lady Ernbless basically lie her face off in front of all these press cameras and threaten the colonies. And there's this, like, I know that you know that I know kind of situation going on. So Noin knows that Zex is worried and he won't acknowledge it. and. No more than he'll acknowledge that, you know, she knows who he really is. She knows that Rina is his sister. And there's this kind of question mark over Zex. It's like, who? what the hell is he doing? Why is he hanging out with these guys? What's his game? Is he really evil or not? And I talked about how other Gundam series pay homage to the original Mobile Suit Gundam series. And I feel like that is where Zex comes in. I think he is a Redux of the character Char Asnabel. Char? Char? Char, I think is how it's pronounced. Char Asnabel is in the original series, and again, I've only read the novel, which I appreciate is different from the anime. And he is a nobleman who joins the enemy originally to get revenge and then kind of gets sucked in for quite a long time. And he is the antagonist, and then he kind of loses sight of his mission, and then stuff happens. I mean, the huge similarities. Coming back to the main characters, Rolina gets pretty complicated this episode. So previously, we've had her set up as this sort of symbol of what life on Earth is like. You know, it's relatively wealthy. She's in a cushy position, but she's not content. She doesn't connect well with the world that she lives in. And this episode is very much about her conflict with two very different parts of herself. So she starts off the episode tabbering on about how the colonies are so great because they're so peaceful. Peace is great, safety's great, yada, yada, yada. But then as soon as violence actually happens to Relina, she gets violent. So her first instinct after her father is killed is that she jumps straight to revenge. She says, Oz did this, didn't they? I'll kill them. She she steals the gun uh, and starts waving that around. And then she has a flashback to hero threatening to kill her and talking to her father and I think it's very key that she jumps to the phrase where she says I'm not a child and from my perspective I feel like what's happening here is that she is jumping to Hiro's decisiveness more than anything you know he acts he kills to defeat his enemies and she realizes that when she called him a child I think she's realizing the depth of how much she doesn't know how much she condescended to him and that he really has experience and capabilities that at the moment she sorely lacks and she's wavering between being quite childlike you know she sits there very passively as they just inject her with some stuff when they pounce on her to get the gun off her she says hanashite kudasai like Hanashte is let go of me and then kudasai is please so it's the one thing i think really sums her up at the moment she's fighting but she can't quite break out of the mould that she's been put into through throughout her childhood. I mean she's very contrary. She's she's pulled in two different directions. She's goes straight to I'm gonna kill them all, I'm gonna get my revenge, to killing can't possibly end in peace when she's talking to Dr. J. She has these little moments where she acts quite childlike and quite naive and then equally quite jaded. And by the end of the episode Relina hasn't fully resolved this. She's come to the conclusion that she doesn't like exactly what dr j is doing perhaps because she has empathized with hero to such an extent that she feels that what dr j is doing is wrong but she hasn't really settled within herself quite what's going on other than that at the end of the day she did love her adopted father and that whatever her biological truth is you know because she's found out she is the heir to this peace philosophy but she's not ready to apply that to herself just yet she does say at the end of it i will always be your daughter and as she is kind of taking on this Darlian identity she goes back to that probably as a bit of a safe space after what has to have been a pretty shit day let's give her some credit you know girl's been through the ringer here and so, really, the last thing that this episode gives us is some insight into Hero. We know that he's effectively a tool. Dr. J certainly talks about him like he's something owned. He's not referred to by name. There's a kind of deep familiarity, but not necessarily a niceness there, I suppose we could say. And there's this thing that Hero is kind-hearted, but he's dedicated to the mission. Um, he will do whatever needs to be done, you know, and this is foreshadowing of what we we know is going to come up in in a few episodes' time. Uh, we learn that he doesn't even have his own name. Hiro is a code name. We see him as well fighting and enjoying it. Um, he has a bit of a chuckle as he's blowing shit up, and. Uh, Finally, we get this little showdown between Hiro and Duo, and again, I said it's often underappreciated how funny Hiro is. He and Duo turn up at the same base. Duo starts giving him shit for uh, stealing his Gundam parts, which didn't really appear to give Hiro much of an advantage. They both turn up at the same mission on the same day, so <laughs> either Howard really pulled all the uh, stops out, or Hiro just is that inefficient. And uh, they start squaring up to like have a Barney. We see Hiro target an enemy that we assume is Duo. And uh, Joe is basically, oh, 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 you want to go? Let's go. And then he uh, blows the head off a of Leo who's sneaking up on him and then says basically, oh, you're welcome, and then flies off. And I don't know, I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that. He he is funny. He is a funny character. So there we go. That's episode five. As I said, a lot going on in there. And uh, it's it's really opening things up to, to carry on. I mean, this is where you start thinking, ooh, okay. Now I could maybe start predicting what's going to happen next, except I can't. And, uh, you know, we will find out what happens in the next one. I think just my closing thought is going to be that I do remember watching this the first time around thinking, by God, there's so much story compared to other animations. And it is fairly relentless. You have to sort of pay attention, otherwise you miss stuff and then you're like, oh, wait. That one throwaway line about the economy was actually relatively vital to understanding who's who and who's what and why they're doing what they're doing. And that's pretty demanding for a kid's show, despite the fact it is one of those shows that, you know, it does kind of take itself seriously, but at the end of the day, it's kind of unintentionally cracky. Anyway, I'm going to leave it there. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you found it interesting. And as ever, you can get hold of me at lemontrash.tumblr.com or through radiometeor the website you can always ping me an email from there just hit the pineapple button and uh, i will see you in orbit next time bye He is fucking motorbikes.